A spectator subscription is now better value than ever before. As a new subscriber joining today, you'll pay just £1 a week for unlimited online and app access in your first year. To subscribe today, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash unlimited. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week we ask three writers from the magazine to read their pieces aloud. I'm Oscar Edmondson and here's what's on the podcast. Freddie Gray questions Biden's supposed hot streak. Is America fast regressing? Mary Killen warns that a neighbourly feud is far worse than a hosepipe ban. And finally, Jonathan Miller talks about France's sexual civil war. Up first, Freddie Gray. It's hardly surprising that China feels emboldened. Xi Jinping must look at America and see not just a superpower in decline, but a gerontocracy that has lost its marbles. Last week, Nancy Pelosi, the 82-year-old Speaker of the House of Representatives, visited Taiwan as a gesture of solidarity, in spite of China's fierce warnings that her arrival would be treated as a grave provocation. Presumably, Pelosi felt that, by not being cowed, she'd shown China who's still global boss. And other photo-opportunistic politicians are expected now to imitate her. What for, though? In the following days, China intensified its military drills around the Taiwan Strait. Some experts reckon that the Chinese Communist Party used Pelosi's visit as an excuse to carry out an invasion rehearsal. Well played, Nancy. Meanwhile, the 79-year-old commander-in-chief fumbles on and on. Last week, Joe Biden's White House tried to redefine the word recession in order to stop America being officially in one. Joe and his wife, Jill, visited a flood in Kentucky, which is what presidents and first ladies are meant to do. On the way back, however, the old man couldn't get on his jacket as he stepped off the Marine One helicopter. Jill had to help him, and he dropped his sunglasses on the tarmac. Barely a day goes by without Biden stumbling in some way, and it all adds to an overwhelming sense that the president is too decrepit. Don't feel too sorry for him, though. Pity the families of the 12,400 Americans who have been shot dead this year as gun crime hits levels not seen in US cities since the early 1990s. Or pity the American infants who can't be fed. For several months, the US has been suffering an acute shortage of baby milk formula. The babies are crying and the babies are hungry, said Pelosi back in May. She and Biden promised urgently to address the issue, caused, it seems, by a combination of lingering pandemic-related supply chain issues and America's leading baby milk producer having to shut down one of its plants over health and safety concerns. It's mid-August, and the baby formula crisis hasn't been resolved. Such problems are not meant to happen in the most highly evolved capitalist economy in the world. Yet America, as Z will have noticed, seems in many ways to be regressing fast. The United States isn't a banana republic, It is doing quite a convincing impression of one, however. On Monday night, the FBI raided Donald Trump's residence in Mar-a-Lago, Florida, apparently looking for evidence that the 45th president, a spring chicken at 76, had hidden official documents in contravention of the Presidential Records Act, an offence that could see him barred from returning to office. Legal scholars are by no means sure that anybody would be able to prove that Trump willfully withheld sensitive government records. After all, the FBI said that Hillary Clinton had been extremely careless with her emails as Secretary of State. Then a State Department investigation declared her not guilty of deliberately mishandling evidence. 
Still, the authorities didn't break into any of Clinton's homes, not publicly anyway, and so Monday's raid looks a lot like what Trump says it is, an act of political intimidation you might expect from a tin-pot dictatorship in the developing world, a desperate bid to find something, anything, that might prevent Trump running for the White House again in 2024. Within a few hours, almost as if he knew it had been coming, Trump released a video that resembled nothing so much as a presidential campaign announcement. We are a nation that has in many ways become a joke, declares the Donald on the film, as gloomy black and white images turn to vivid colour. But soon we will have greatness again. Perhaps the FBI knows something very damning about Trump that we don't. If not, why would the Bureau, or possibly Attorney General Merrick Garland, do something that appears so neatly to validate the Trumpist refrain that the deep state will stop at nothing to take down their hero? Why would Trump's enemies give him such a near-perfect launchpad opportunity? Conspiracy theories sprout everywhere. One is that the FBI, led as it is by a Trump appointee, Christopher Wray, is at some level working with, not against Trump, in order to help absolve him in the public eye over his behaviour in the aftermath of the November 2020 election. Another, slightly less far-fetched idea, is that the Democrats are trying to goad the Donald into announcing his 2024 campaign before the fast-approaching midterm elections. That would be because the dreaded idea of a Trump comeback might mobilise Democratic voters in the coming months and help prevent a Republican red wave at the ballot in November. What's certain is that Republicans are itching to start counter-investigations into the Biden administration as soon as their party seizes control of Congress. Hours after the Trump raid, the House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy declared, when Republicans take back the House, we will conduct immediate oversight of this department, follow the facts and leave no stone unturned. Attorney General Garland, preserve your documents and clear your calendar. Republicans thrill at such fighting talk. The trouble is that it turns American democracy into a remorseless partisan tug-of-war in which the party in power just endlessly prosecutes the opposition and nobody ever substantially addresses the country's problems. Which brings us back to Joe Biden. In recent days, the Democratic spin machine in Washington has been insisting that, contrary to what you might think, the White House is in fact winning. Never mind that more than 70% of Americans believe the country is on the wrong track, Biden is on a hot streak, according to a large number of media outlets, because he started making strides with his economic and environmental agendas. Team Biden boasts of record high numbers on employment, which sounds great if you ignore the cost of living crisis, the decline in real wage earnings, and the two consecutive quarters of economic shrinkage. Maybe the Democrats who pump out this spin really believe that a big Biden turnaround is imminent. Or maybe they just hope that if the old man can convince himself he's not a great failure, he might step aside and let someone else run for the Democratic nomination in 2024. Either way, the horror story that is American politics continues. That was Freddie Gray. Next, Mary Killen. We know many water companies are themselves guilty of profligate waste through unrepaired leaks. So to snitch on a neighbour who is making a comparatively tiny personal contribution to the drought seems petty. But we are only human, and it's hard to watch your flowers and vegetables wither and die while your neighbour is still drenching his own produce with gay abandon. If you have a smart water meter, you might be more careful about overuse as Big Brother is watching you. Candy, 
a wife and mother of three in my nearby town, showed me her own bill for water use. It announced that her total water use was 93M to the power of three between January and July 2022. The bill declared, that's the same as about 372,000 cups of tea or 1,240 showers or 1,163 baths. So I would be wary of using a hose during this drought, Candy told me, because I feel the meter would catch me out. But those without smart meters often believe they are special cases. One profligate waterer, still using a sprinkler system when I went to her garden for drinks last week, said, I thought we were short of vegetables in this country. And anyway, all my family prefer showers to baths so we can use that saved water to keep the vegetables alive. Another woman in Worcestershire argued, well, I have chosen not to have children, so I think I'm perfectly entitled to use as much water as I want. Yet every little helps, as the supermarket slogan goes, and if every individual would restrict their water use, then the sum of the saving would be greater than the whole of its parts. But as a concept, every little helps is hard to drive home into resistant brains. Think of all the caravan park punters who refused to restrict their use of wet wipes. The owners begged people not to flush them down their toilets, but each holidaymaker thought they were a special case, even though it had been explained that the parks were not on Maine's water. Once the owners began to spend more on drain engineers than they were taking from punters, they had to close the parks down. When it comes to residential water wastrels, the digital age is bringing out the school sneak in too many of us. Go online and you can anonymously name and shame the offenders to your water company or the local authority, even supplying video evidence secretly filmed on your phone. Much better to go quietly along to the profligate neighbour and hiss conspiratorially that you've heard there's a hosepipe enforcement officer doing the rounds locally. Then nod and wink supportively as they rush to turn off their sprinklers or stop filling their paddling pools. And what if you have your own tip-off, i.e. you learn that some neighbour who you thought, after lockdown bonding, you were on good terms with, has taken it on themselves to dob you in. Rise above it and pretend it never happened. A recent survey shows that Londoners are the least likely to grass on their neighbours, while Scottish residents are the keenest. Could this be because city dwellers are less in touch with the land and less able to think through the consequences of proper drought? Whatever the reason, my blanket rule is do not snitch. And similarly, don't lay yourself open to being snitched upon. A lifelong feud with a neighbour is many times worse than a temporary drought. That was Mary Killen. Finally, Jonathan Miller. France is going through a sexual civil war. After the great carnal outburst of the free-loving Soisant Huitard, 
Some seem to have reverted to abstinence and prudishness, while others are pushing sexuality to new extremes. The crisis in French sexuality has exposed itself this summer as the clothes have come off. And it's not always a pretty sight, and not just because it isn't true that French people don't get fat. Major confusion on the shifting boundaries of corporal and sexual expression has grown into a peculiar conflict, exposing a national sexual neurosis. On one side of this conflict is France's army of traditional naturists, a largely aging clan who revel in the freedom, classlessness, and wholesome pleasures of a nudity that they claim has nothing to do with sex at all. They are at war with libertines, voyeurs, exhibitionists, habitués of club échangistes, and people from the dodgier ends of the internet who have emerged from the shadows to disport themselves in the blazing sun and taken advantage of the season to turn many French beaches into what the appalled here call une baie des cochons, a bay of pigs. Traditional naturist camping sites and holiday villages are hiring security guards to watch out for dubious characters. The naturism industry here is said to be worth about 250 million euro to the French economy, though I suspect it's really much more. It attracts tourists from all over Europe, including plenty of Brits. But the boundaries between traditional new beaches and libertine beaches are sometimes blurred. Last month near Lyon, on a sandy lakeside, a 75-year-old traditional nudist became so enraged by a man masturbating in front of a woman that he pulled a carbine out of his beach bag and shot him dead. Naturists are not only at war with the libertines, but also now challenged by a cult within naturism calling themselves Les Nudiens, which seeks to normalize a state of liberty, equality, and nudity in public spaces. Some are even attempting to rebrand exhibitionism as green, said one, we're no longer motivated by health or sport, but by ecology and the desire to live differently by shedding the dictates of society. Museums in Paris have thrown open their doors to nudists, and at least one restaurant has offered naked dining. A recent TV series, Naked, posited that nudity had become compulsory in France. It was awful, but it got gigantic ratings. Les Nudiens have even got designs on one of France's hallowed brands, the Tour de France. Several prefects moved last month to halt an unofficial Tour de France naked bike ride. The riders intend to rally hundreds of naked local cyclists wherever they go. The naturist establishment is not impressed. Alongside the struggle between the various naked people, there's a parallel struggle to control the nude economy. Traditional nudist venues have been almost wearily wholesome, 
not so the Cartier Naturiste that dot the coastline with naked nightclubs, naked supermarkets and massage parlours. In Cap Dagd, France's largest nudist resort, libertine nightclubs have even been attacked. Implausibly, this was attributed to arson by hardline traditionalists, mullers of chaste nudity. More probably, it was a work of criminal gangs settling scores. A local police official has described Cap Dagd as the biggest bordello in Europe. In recent years, the growth in French nudism is claimed to have come not from the expected hordes of the aged and drooping, but from the young. They are, according to the French Federation of Naturists, the majority of the more than half a million nudists who have swelled the ranks of the great unclothed in the past decade, with around a third, now under 30. I frankly don't believe this. The average age of naked people at Cap Dagd appears to be 50. Over the past decade, the number of French women willing even to sunbathe topless has fallen by a third. Whether or not the young are keen on getting it off, they are decidedly less enthusiastic about getting it on. Boomer sexual freedom has been followed by a new era of prudishness in which youth appear to have swapped actual sex for naked selfies. Over the past 12 months, 43% of France's youth had not had sex. In the UK, it's 25%. The swinging 60s, it isn't. Yet three quarters of French teenagers admit sexting. Millions of adolescents are teasing each other with nude selfies, but holding back from the act itself. France has taken an almost Germanic turn, a growing proclivity for nudity, united with a kind of sexlessness. It's a peculiar reality, not unique to France, but strange for a country so renowned for its carnal fixations, yet now gripped by pornification as a substitute. Sociologists and journalists are reveling in this. Le Monde says young boys are filled with anxiety, fear of shame and humiliation, the pressure of virility. It's not just boys or the young who seem terrified of sex. The new sexual politics and two years lockdown have stopped the fingers at the moment of unhooking the bra, as they say here. Before COVID hit, French people claimed to be having sex six times a month, down from nine in 2007. They were not only having less sex, they told pollsters, but enjoying it less too. If a topless Brigitte Bardot defined la révolution sexuelle, today the counter-revolution is defined by the burkini, which is absurdly banned almost everywhere here as an Islamist provocation. But given some of the spectacles on offer on French beaches this summer, there's a case for making this modest head-to-toe swimwear compulsory for all. So, are the French still at it like rabbits? 
Or have they reverted to the position of, no sex please, we're French? Probably a bit of both. Some seem more militant than ever in their carnal pursuits, and they are highly visible, especially during this long summer. But many are becoming more prudish. What's evident is, if you go down to the beach this summer, you may be in for a big surprise. And that was Jonathan Miller. That's everything for this week. If you'd like to hear more like that, pick up a copy of The Spectator. I'm Oscar Edmondson, and please join us next week.